Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for letting me speak to you today for catechesis. My name is Katie Schrader. For those of you, the, you who don't know me, um, probably mostly <laughs> the 11 o'clock service specifically, um, I have been at All Souls for the past 18 months, moved here in summer of 2018 with my husband and my daughter. Um, I am currently a family medicine physician at a local clinic. Um, so Deacon Rob had asked me to speak a little bit um, about where we find ourselves in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, um, which I think is obviously one thing that's on everybody's mind. So uh, Rob knows this, um, that I swore that I would never um, give a catechesis. Uh, but I think in a time of pandemic, a lot of nevers have turned into realities. Um, so here we are. Full disclosure, I don't view myself as an expert of anything really, especially church history, the history of medicine. Um, what I'm hoping to do is really draw out a couple historical examples of how the church um, has reacted in plagues in the past and where we find ourselves now with the coronavirus and um, where we're going moving forward. So um, I just would ask for some mercy to those of you who are experts in the Middle Ages and um, church history. I'm going to do my best not to misspeak. So here we go. So Rob had shared a little bit with me about what he was planning on um, preaching on this coming Sunday. So the scripture for this Sunday is Psalm 23, um, 1 Peter, uh, and then also a passage from John, John 10, um, the parable of the uh, Good Shepherd. And really what I, what I think is being drawn out in these passages specifically is Christ as a carer. So, for example, the parable of the Good Shepherd, you have the comparison of the hired hands who really don't have a lot invested in the flock, whereas compared to the Good Shepherd, you know, one is lost out of the hundred and he is distraught. So we have this beautiful example of Christ um, caring um, on an individual level um, and um, also a physical, in a physical sense for um, his flock. I think not to belabor the point too much, um, Christ is also called the great physician, which I don't think is too big of a leap from Christ as shepherd. Um, and I think what we see clearly demonstrated throughout the gospel is his concern for the physical well-being of those around him. You know, he didn't come to earth as a sort of spirit that was in the sky and giving us these great moral lessons. He came as a man with a body. Um, we see example after example of him healing people physically, not just 
um, spiritually, but physically taking away their afflictions. I think one of my favorite examples of this is the woman with the discharge of blood who's depicted to the right. So this is a fresco um, that was found in the catacombs um, of Rome, uh, about three kilometers south of Rome. Um, and what I love about this specific gospel story is Jesus not only engaging someone with a physical affliction, but somebody who was an, a societal outcast. So women, as we know from the Old Testament, who had bleeding were considered unclean. Ritualistically, they did not have access to the temple in the Old Testament. They had to go through a ritual cleansing. And this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. So not only was she physically suffering, she was an outcast in society. She spiritually did not have access um, to God in the same way in the Jewish faith that everybody else did. Um, there's a lot of speculation about what she was actually suffering from. I think I would presume it would probably be some benign uterine tumors that would have caused the bleeding. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we really don't know, but what we do know is that, um, Christ was not just here for the, um, elites or even those who, um, maybe were deserving of healing, but anybody who came to him and had faith were healed. So I think the, especially we see starting very early in church history, the um, church really latches onto this idea, you know, that Christ came not just to give somebody the Roman road and attract and say, here you go, your soul is saved, but really care for them uh, physically. So moving forward, I wanted to highlight a couple of examples of the church's response to plagues in the past. Um, like I had said previously, I think um, the, the early church really deeply understood Christ's mis mission was not limited to the salvation of a soul as opposed to the body. Um, so one way this is clearly demonstrated was in the plague of Cyprian. So if you're not familiar, this was a plague that had, um, devastated the Roman empire in the third century, um, 249 to 262 AD. We really don't know what the plague was. Some of the other, um, plagues throughout, um, history we've actually been able to diagnose really interestingly. Um, but we, we, we have a lot of speculation. I've seen some people speculate that it was influenza that was affecting people. Some, some people had said that it could have been, you know, an Ebola-like virus. The, the reason that it's named for Cyprian, who was the Bishop of Carthage at the time, is because he did a lot of writing about it, is my understanding. So I guess you um, record enough, then you get a, a plague named after you. Um, so he had described the symptoms and um, 
sort of the church's response. But actually, I do want to read to you a quote of the church's response and the Christian's response, um, actually from Dionysius, who was actually the Bishop of Alexandria at the time. Um, and he observed Christians attending to the ill. So what he had said was, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their deaths to themselves and died in their stead. Um, one of the authors that I have been reading in preparing for this catechesis um, is Rodney Stark, who's written a lot about the Christian's response um, to uh, other healthcare disasters, essentially. Um, so what he argues is that in the time of the Empire of Rome, there was not really a unified concept of social service or community solidarity. If you got sick, it was on your family to take care of you. Um, what he said was, quote, when disasters struck, the Christians were better able to cope and this resulted in substantially higher rates of survival. And I think he points out something really important here. You know, we think about, especially in a very modern sense that illness is, well, if you don't get the treatment, then you're not gonna get better. But throughout history, it's clearly been demonstrated that, you know, they didn't have treatments for a lot of diseases. It was really excellent nursing care. So you may not have been able to administer the antibiotic that would have cured whatever this disease was, but by attending people, giving them food, keeping them hydrated, you were making a huge difference in the survival rate. Um, so I think we can say that, you know, there were definitely examples of Christians who were sacrificing themselves um, in this plague. And there's, this will bring us um, quite a leap forward in history to the Black Death. So the Black Death, I think most people are familiar with, was um, a pandemic that absolutely decimated Europe during the 14th century. Still the most deadly um, pandemic in recorded history, estimated to have killed a third to half of the population of Europe, which was estimated, you know, the total number of deaths were 75 to 200 million at the time. Um, the Black Death was, um, has actually been identified as um, plague, and that's the actual medical term. So one thing that I didn't realize um, until I went to medical school was that plague is still a recognizable disease today. It's We still have outbreaks of plague, and that is the name of the disease is plague, capital P. Um, it's caused by a bacteria called Yersinia pestis. We see um, how it's typically passed is um, the bacteria lives in rodents, probably rats, um, at the time of the Middle Ages. Um, and 
fleas bite the infected rats, then fleas bite humans, and humans are infected with the bacteria. Um, so the Yersinia pestis bacteria causes three distinct types of illness, all of which are considered plague. The most prevalent is the bubonic plague. Um, so what happens in that is you get swelling of lymph nodes, um, which is where the term come from. Term comes from. These were called buboes, those swellings in the groin, in the armpits, in the neck. Um, the death rate um, from plague untreated still today is devastating. It's around 70%. Um, with antibiotics, that drops it significantly, um, but still a 10% mortality rate um, for people who are infected with Yersinia pestis. Um, and interestingly, maybe only to me, but in 2010, they did confirm that the Black Death was indeed plague caused by Yersinia pestis. They were able to isolate um, the DNA of the Yersinia pestis bacteria from a mass grave, from a skeleton um, that was archeologically associated with the Black, the Black Death. So we know with reasonable certainty that this was what was going on. So, Throughout the 14th century, you know, there was a, a period of eight years where millions of people died, but this um, disease did not go away by any means. There were outbreaks cropping up um, here and there. And uh, one of the ones that I, I wanted to highlight was an outbreak in Wittenberg in 1527. Um, and we have some letters from Martin Luther um, recording that he and his wife Catherine actually stayed to minister to the sick in Wittenberg. So a lot of people were leaving um, leaving because of the plague and just leaving people to die. So what he had said was, we are here alone with the deacons, but Christ is present too, that we may not be alone and he will triumph in us over that old serpent, murderer and author of sin. However, much may he bruise Christ's heel. Pray for us and farewell. And that was a letter from 1527 uh, in August. Um, this illustration here, I just thought was appropriate. It's actually, it's not um, a depiction of the outbreak of plague in Wittenberg. It's the plague of boils um, from Egypt uh, illustration from the Wittenberg Bible, but I thought it matched nicely. So what we see is, you know, another example of Christians who were called to stay. You know, they were there essentially as nursing staff to stay with the sick. Um, so moving forward, um, well, actually moving back a little bit into the um, 600s, but also just anecdotally thinking about it, we know the church has traditionally been a place of solace in times of plague, not just spiritually, but physically. Um, if you think anecdotally, the names of hospitals, for example, Christ, St. Luke's, St. So-and-so's, so the ministry of caring for the sick was really born out of the church, at least in Western civilization. Um, you know, there were these, and, and really it started in the monastic orders in the fifth and sixth century. So 
this is just an example. I'm, I apologize. I don't know much about this image, but it was um, a depiction of Hotel Dieu, which was the first hospital in Paris. It was founded by the Bishop of Paris and run by Augustinian nuns. So it was a place of um, comfort and spiritual sustenance, um, but also a place to care physically for the ill. Um, this hospital still exists in Paris. It uh, was originally built on the Ile de la Cité. I apologize, <laughs> literally, for my French. Um, it's since moved, uh, I think, to the left bank. Um, and the nuns worked there until 1908. So it's been a very recent, um, you know, till very recent history, was very intimately involved with the church. Um, so I, I think that we have this, you know, there's many other examples. These are just a few that I've drawn out to demonstrate how the church has continued to fulfill this mission of Christ, um, to care for the whole person, the spiritual and the physical aspect. And now we take another quantum leap forward to the coronavirus outbreak. Um, so in one sense, we find ourselves in a very similar place that we were in, you know, hundreds of years ago, a new disease, which we don't really have treatments for. Um, we don't fully understand um, and is very transmissible, transmissible and we have very low immunity in the population. Um, so as you probably all know, but coronavirus is a respiratory illness um, that's highly transmissible. So it's suspected that one person can infect anywhere from two to five others Higher infectivity rate we see in something like measles where one person will infect nine people. Lower infectivity rate is something like the seasonal flu, which infects maybe one, one person will infect another one and 1.5 other people. Um, there's a lot of research going on. There's um, recently some new trials showing that some of the antiviral medications that were suspected to be helpful for this disease are actually um, demonstrating statistically significant improval in um, hospital stays, um, decreasing ICU uh, length of stays specifically. Um, but where do, where do the church, where does the church find itself in this, I think is the big question. So, you know, we can take some information from the headlines. So one of the first, I think, things that came up um, as far as the church's involvement in the coronavirus is that one of the major spots, hotspots of outbreak in South Korea was actually pinpointed to one of the mega churches there. So there was a super spreader is one of the terms that we use. We don't really understand why, but certain people, instead of infecting, you know, a couple other people up to five, they will infect dozens. And so this is what was suspected to have happened. Um, they ended up with thousands of cases out of this one church. Uh, we also see churches defying the stay-at-home order. Um, 
so we're not meeting physically at the behest of um, our governor. Um, and some churches are choosing not to follow these, but to meet in person. Uh, and finally, if you don't know this individual, this is uh, Kenneth Copeland, who is a televangelist um, who's come under some fire recently, not only for his um, fabulous wealth, but specifically um, a video of him, which as a, an ex-Presbyterian, frozen chosen, don't raise your hand in church um, <laughs> type of person, I found very terrifying, this very charismatic video of him blowing the wind of God um, and, you know, claiming to have cured his um, audience of the coronavirus. So I think one difficult thing to realize in this specific pandemic is how drastically our vocation has changed. And a lot of that has to do with the development of modern medicine. So even as recently as a hundred years ago, I mean, we, we, um, the saying was that, you know, doctors up until the invention of penicillin, it was really holding your hand and maybe giving you some aspirin or heroin or whatever they had access to, but we didn't really have a lot to offer patients. Um, and now, even though we don't have you know, rigorous developed treatments for the coronavirus. We have jumped forward so drastically. Um, and I think that sort of the um, difficulty in grasping the fact that we're no longer going to be the ones who are physically present with the sick and dying is very difficult. And Esau Macaulay, who's a New Testament professor at Wheaton, I think summarized it beautifully. Um, this was from a New York Times article that I think was published about a month ago. This does not seem like the stuff of legend. What did the church do in the year of our Lord 2020 when sickness swept our land? We met in smaller groups, washed our hands, and prayed. Unglamorous as this is, it may be the shape of faithfulness in our time. So I think the one thing I want to encourage you is that our calling in this pandemic is not to be manning ventilators. Even myself, who is in healthcare, um, you know, as an outpatient family medicine doctor, this is currently not my calling. I'm taking mostly phone calls from home. And that in and of itself can be a little disheartening. I think any doctor who tells you they don't have a slight hero complex um, might not be telling you the full truth. Um, to sit at home while I see other people who are battling on the front lines, even as terrifying as that is, um, can be really difficult. So I think the, the question that we need to be asking ourselves, we're not gonna be the Katie and Martin Luther staying in Wittenberg. We're not gonna be, um, you know, the deacons in Alexandria and Carthage um, fighting this unknown disease. How does our vocation change in a time of crisis and pandemic? Um, and I really want to leave you with more of a question. I, I don't have an answer except to say that um, I think 
we have a beautiful opportunity um, to really have empathy for those within the church and also without. I think in suffering, we have the opportunity to harden or to have mercy. I've seen in myself um, really having a lot more compassion for those who view, especially the data about what we should be doing with, um, you know, the quarantines and the shutdowns. Um, I think one thing that I've been seeing is, you know, I have a very <laughs> strongly held perspective being in healthcare about, you know, how necessary these um, stay-at-home orders are, but I really have felt empathy and compassion for those who strongly disagree with me. Um, even though I, I, um, I would argue that they're maybe misinterpreting some of the data, I, I find, I understand their anxiety and the suffering that they're going through. I think that um, as a church, we are the place um, where we can bring sickness. Um, our own sickness and in others, and we can minister out of that brokenness. Um, I think that Matt Milliner really summarized it so beautifully in his um, introduction to this series a few weeks ago, and he said, in the dichotomy of law versus gospel, let us come down on the side of gospel. Um, so that's the thought I want to leave you with, um, and I thank you for letting me bring a little bit of um, hopefully not too much medical uh, mumbo jumbo to you. Here's some of my resources um, if you're interested. The Medicine and Healthcare in Early Christianity is a really interesting read. Johns Hopkins University Press has made it um, free access um, to anybody during the coronavirus um, pandemic. So if you're interested in that, please take a look. Um, so thank you so much for listening to me and I hope you all stay safe and stay well.